Every human being has creativity within, but not everyone feels the call to be an artist. An artist is someone who answers the call to create again and again, and there's beauty and value in that because if to be human is to be creative, who better to learn about creativity than from working artists? I'm your host, Mandy Harmon, a film director, creative marketer, and sometimes with my teeth gritted, consider myself an artist. This is not an interview podcast. Artbreakers is a conversation podcast. Conversing with me in Artbreakers episodes are mostly full-time creative artists of all kinds. Artbreakers aims to share with you the kind of vulnerability that deepens your creative work in meaningful ways, whether or not you identify as an artist. In this episode, I talk with Jay Kirk Richards, a visual artist of many mediums, but primarily known for his sculpture and oil painting work, specializing in Judeo-Christian themes. As usual, it's hard to describe the visual on an audio podcast, but for context, what draws me to Jay Kirk's work is differentiated from the overly clean, almost sterile, whitewashed depictions of God and related angelic creatures that I've seen in a lot of contemporary Christianity and particularly Mormon work. His work has a bit more divine femininity and embraced messier elements in it, which, to me, imply a sense of comforting chaos. I'd recommend you seeing it for yourself at jkirkrichards.com or on Instagram at jkirkrichards. You can also follow jkirkrichards on TikTok for oil painting tips and more art-related advice. We both share in having grown up in Mormon backgrounds, and while I have since left the religion, I haven't left faith in spirituality. So jkirk and I find plenty of common ground in which to discuss art, the Mormon faith, and the larger framework of Christianity, and the spiritual underlinings of creativity. Let's get into it with jkirkrichards. Kirk, welcome to Artbreakers. Thank you for coming on today. Really yeah, it's a pleasure it. to be here. Thank you. Well, I, I normally just hop right into it uh, and, and I start with a little bit about, you know, just a little bit of the history, just to kind of give our listeners a, a picture into who you are, where you grew up, what your family was like. And so where, where did you grow up? Where, where, where are you from? Yeah, I grew up in Provo, Utah, just about a block away from the Harris Fine Arts Center. And, and you spend a lot of time there later on when you go to BYU, yeah? Yeah, yeah. That was where most of my classes were as an art major. I, I grew up fourth of eight kids in a family that focused on music. So we all had music lessons. Uh, my family was quite religious. We studied the scriptures and practiced our musical instruments before school every day. And were your parents musicians? My, they were. My mom was uh, and is a violinist and a violin teacher. She was the concert master for the Utah Valley Symphony for many years. And she has a, a, a small music school where she focuses on stringed instruments, teaching kids. Um, uh, through a kind of an Americanized version that she's adapted from the Hungarian Kodai method. I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but my mom certainly is. I think it involves, uh, involves learning music through uh, kind of folk songs and then applying um, the kind of the technique on top of that and the musicianship on top of that. So rather than theory first, these are the building blocks, it starts with this is the history of, this is the folk, this is the cultural. There's a cultural element and it's, yeah, it's integrated so that 
musicianship is is emphasized you know technique is part of it but also just kind of the natural development of of tunes and rhythms and all of those things that kind of have come up through the culture very cool very cool and your dad he my dad was uh you know he played the french horn i i think he probably did some music in college but that was not his major ultimately so um but yeah he he did play the french horn so the the three boys in our family opted to, to in addition to piano learn a brass instrument and the five girls the five daughters in addition to piano opted to learn a stringed instrument mm, that's fantastic i played the french horn and piano yeah my lessons were in the fine arts center at byu and so i would i was this little kid you know carrying this horn that was as big as me through the halls of the fine arts center mm -hmm. but i would see the art on the walls and that was something that really was attractive to me and like it just really captured my imagination and i thought you know maybe i could be in in this world or maybe i could uh, learn to do something like this so for you 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 always had kind of an eye on the visual arts but music was what your family was about yeah yeah i mean i don't know exactly how that kind of unfolded in my earliest years but i do remember participating in like the school art competitions and enjoying that a lot and then by the time that i was about 14 i just realized i'm not cut out for sitting through uh, music rehearsals as a French horn player. A lot of times French horn players, uh, the parts that are written for French horn in in bands are, are often playing upbeat. So, you know, you're just going, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and then with the orchestral parts, a lot of times you count uh, 20, 40 measures of rest, and then you're expected to come in for like a two measure glorious solo on a cold embouchure and it just all falls apart. I mean, we any of us that have listened to an amateur orchestra play, we've heard the French horn players come in and blurt out their first notes, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so that was- There's quite a few uh, failed videos <laughs> with that specific yeah. Star Wars. They're doing the whole overture and and then the French horn is mm -hmm. messed up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyway, I just thought, I don't really, this isn't my thing, right? So I, I begged my parents at that point to let me start taking art lessons, to trade in my music lessons for art lessons. So they ultimately relented, and uh, my, my parents, my mom found an art teacher for me, and I began taking art lessons at about age 14. And they were, they were really supportive of that. Very supportive. My mom drove me to, to these lessons. You know, she had found the art teacher for me. By the time I was uh, going to college, you know, I came home one day from an elective class that was a figure drawing class and told my parents, you know, I, I just think this is really what I want to do. And... Um, what, what was calling to you about it? Like, was it, you know, colors, textures? Was it just the world? Was it just a curiosity that, what, why were you so drawn to that, do you think? Or it just, it just was? I think 
I was in my early years enamored with some of the artwork that was out there. I became a big fan of the fantasy artist James Christensen. Mm -hmm. Did I you read Voyage of the Bethet? Yeah, I had that. Yeah. I had a vi I had that a video. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, a, a video of him. I w watched regularly. I can't remember the name of it, but his publisher put out a video that of him talking about his art. Um, and then, you know, I even stalked him one day because he taught at BYU and I was this teenager just like trying to get a glimpse of I'm the, a student. I'm just ordering the class. <laughs> I don't think I ever, I'm not sure if I actually saw him or not, but I would just like kind of pass by his uh, office there on campus and, Hover. and just, Try to just get see a if I could get a glimpse of this guy that I thought was, you know, Larger than, larger than life, so yeah. even though a small man in stature. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah. by the time I was a, in college, you know, I was thinking about something more practical, maybe science. I took S Statistics 222 as a prerequisite for something that I didn't end up ever doing, but I also took figure drawing and loved it. I just sitting in there drawing from the human form and I felt like, you know, maybe I'm not half bad at this, just kind of sizing myself up in the, in the class. I thought, you know, I could, I could maybe do this. Mm -hmm. So did you feel more drawn to like landscapes and nature first or, you know, figuratives? I think always figurative. Like I've always loved, if I go to a museum, it's, it's the, the paintings that depict people telling stories or concepts with people. I'm really drawn to kind of personification of ideas. Um, and so, yeah, the human form has always been where it's at for me. And you do a lot of that in your sculpture work and in your oil paintings. And you do a lot of spiritual-based work too, a lot of spiritual. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think e even in those early days, it was partly that kind of the spiritual underpinning of James Christensen's work that I was drawn to. I um, later started looking a lot at the prints that were kind of everywhere of Karl Bloch's work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really just uh, enjoying those and, and felt the spirit of those. I don't know, I, you know, I felt like the things that were being done in the religious work in my own religious tradition weren't uh, didn't speak to me quite as much as some of those more kind of old world images. And so I think part of what drove me in the early years as an artist was trying to capture some of the kind of maybe European excellence in artwork, both from the, kind of the neoclassical era, but into the modern era. And I wanted to bring some of those aesthetic ideas into my own kind of religious tradition mm -hmm. and, um, and make it less about dogma and more about the art. Like I was feeling something in this art and it wasn't dogma, it was like poetry and beauty. And that's what I wanted to bring to my artwork. Mm -hmm. It's like a more like impressionist kind of feeling spirituality like with it. 
you think? Um, sometimes, sometimes it's impressionism. Um, and sometimes it's it's mystery, you know, being in the Mountain West in a religion that prizes knowledge above every above most other things. Um, knowledge and obedience; those are both things that I don't personally respond to. Mm-hmm. I respond more to mystery and poetry ambiguity maybe exactly like yes i mm-hmm. think that there is um courage in embracing ambiguity and so those are things that i wanted to to bring to the aesthetic and the concepts uh the way that i conceptually approach art well then let's let's not beat around the bush with this one because i i have a feeling this is going to come up because this is a reoccurring theme in your in your work so i'd love to know um the listeners are from everywhere not all of them are you know in utah as familiar with the mormon faith um which I, is the religion you're discussing right that's is that yeah. the religion you just you subscribe to i it, I, I, how do I want to say that? I mean, uh, we can separate I subscribe it out to my I own would... version of Mormonism, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely take uh, a, non, um, a non-orthodox view of mm-hmm. what community should be, how we should approach community, how we should interact with the outside world. Mm-hmm. Like, those are things that I... I wouldn't consider myself as subscribed or towing the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I grew up Mormon. I attend. I play the organ in church. Um, I run or serve on the board of several uh, arts organizations that are Mormon art organizations. And um, and I'm always trying to push. I think over the years, my artwork has moved from what I described earlier to definitely a uh, trying to push and stretch towards kind of more progressive, more open um, ways of facing life and church policy and dogma, all those things. Those are all things that I'm interested in and working towards in my artwork and imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, we're in Utah. It's a high concentration of, of Mormons and the Mormon faith. There's a whole spectrum of beliefs within it. And a whole, uh, you know, the, the relationship to spirituality is very personal for each individual. What is that within or without or outside of that framework? What is your spirituality? Like, where does that land for you? I don't know if my spirituality has landed anywhere other than the kind of the community that I'm most drawn to is kind of the academic LDS community which kind of takes a step back and observes and analyzes a bigger picture including historical implications um, and and you know is somewhat uh, self-reflective and also at times critical of um, the way things continue to currently unfold the way that policies are implemented and then withdrawn and then couched as coming directly from God's mouth. So some of these things 
um, I guess the way that I respond to a lot of things has, has led me to this place where many of my peers or the people that I learn from and listen to are kind of in the the Latter-day Saint intellectual community. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's not quite what I'm asking. And, and before I go further, I should add, this is a consent-based podcast. So if I ask a question that you don't want to answer or you're like, ah, I just don't even really want to go that down that road, feel free to say so and we'll move on. Okay. Um, but... Are you asking about where, if I believe in God? Well, I, know, I, well, I want to know right. how you believe in God. Yeah. And, and how that shows up or does it not in your work. Because, I mean, you do, you know, I know you have a lot of Judeo-Christian themes in your work. You have, you know, a whole, a whole area of divine feminine, which I find very interesting as, as, as you know, a woman who also grew up Mormon. I, I'm no longer, but um, I... I'm a very existential spiritual person myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find on this podcast is as I chat with all kinds of artists from all kinds of backgrounds, spirituality always has to be creative. It's a spiritual practice for many people. Absolutely. And I want to know more what that is like for you, whether or not, you know, I, you know, you could, whether we don't even have to really touch Mormonism in that way. Like I, I, I'd be curious what that, creativity and art as a spiritual practice is like for you? Yeah, I mean, right from the, you know, pretty early on in the development of a, of a religious artist, I would say the artist comes up against this dichotomy, which is the conservative religion is telling them that in order to have this, the spirit of God or to benefit from the, the inspiration of God, that you need to live uh, a fairly strict prescribed um, list of commandments or, mm-hmm. or you know, you need to live a righteous life. And then, so as we develop and we're trying to be, be good and live this life, we're looking over at this divergent path where the artists that are making some of the best art that's ever been made in the world have really, really do not live that life. So mm-hmm. how can they then be uh, benefiting from the inspiration of God if, you know, even if so many of them don't even believe in God, probably, but based on certainly no concept that equates to any concept of God that, that you know, a conservative religion might prescribe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a, that can be a difficult thing to tease out or even just to uh, carve a middle ground mm-hmm. as a religious artist. What I would say is that I personally think that art is itself a prayer and or a hymn and or a plea for something greater than the artist's self to intervene. And as such, you need you do not need righteousness to to pray. You don't need righteousness to sing a hymn. And I, I do look for righteousness, but in my own way. Like like social justice is an is an important thing to me. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of being right with my fellow men and women and and people have become kind of the, the righteousness that I've chosen to, to focus on. But also, 
making art is for me very much a prayer. It's very much a hymn. It's very much a plea for intervention from something greater than myself. And, and, and that's, that's how I make sense of it. Yeah. And that right there, I think, is, is almost like the reoccurring theme in, in creativity is that no matter what word people use for it, you know, for some people it's God, for some people it's a higher power, for some people it's just the wholeness, it's, it's the bigger than oneself. Um, artists, right, tap into that 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 x factor that that mystery you know that ambiguity of who knows what that is because it's just it's where almost the art takes over because it is they're the vehicle for it is that something that you relate to as well yeah absolutely as you're saying that you know i think <clears throat> it made me think of a lot of the a lot of the productions that are are put out and published by religious institutions that are wrapped in a neat bow and stamped with a logo at the end you know like i watched the most beautiful my friend in fact directed the most beautiful depiction of the nativity of christ's birth um, and it was published by the church and then at the end they wrapped it in a bow and stuck the the logo on it and it just took away from the art of it so I think that the again the that the the art is letting the ambiguity and the grandness and the expanse of the world and the universe and the ambiguity of not knowing how everything is supposed to be ordered but feeling the sense that there is an order like those things distill on us and make they enlarge our spirit and so to to try to kind of pigeonhole that expanse into a a, a small box it, it it takes away from the expansiveness of and the mystery of where did this thing come from i really am a small person in a giant universe mm -hmm. You know, there's 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 this video that I watched um, from this modern philosopher, Elaine de Bouton. He talks in some sort of clickbaity title where it's like religion for atheists or something like that, right? Some sort of TED Talk type thing. Hmm. And um, his his whole philosophy and what he's talking about is uh, art in many ways. Uh, art and religion have gone hand in hand for a very very long time. And he talks about um, what in in many ways art doesn't necessarily replace religion, but for some people it does. Um, but what we are neglecting, uh, at least in secularism, is things that religion can still teach us, things like repetition, ritual, um, those, uh, those elements uh, we, we kind of overlook. Um, and those are things that could be definitely gained from religion. He's, he's, he's kind of of the mind that, you know, kind of cafeteria religion. He's like, you know, pick and choose what works for you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of his I'm philosophy. A strong but believer that everyone is a cafeteria religionist. So, I, I mean, would that, also agree. The practice, <laughs> everyone who practices religion is a cafeteria mm -hmm. practitioner. I, I, I would agree with you. Um, but do you think that those tenets of religion, like repetition, ritual, um, 
I've just been thinking about this lately and how those show up in, in art already. Um, almost kind of like the relationship of religion and art because they've gone so hand in hand, like that, like that feeling of, of the sublime, you know, is found in art and in religion and in religious art, right? Um, I, guess, I guess where I'm going with this is, is art to you a form of worship and communion because it, because it is so religious but also spiritual? Like it's both of those things for you question mark yeah yeah absolutely like as i'm working through a composition i'm trying to place myself immerse myself either in the historical scene and i'm not i'm, I'm not really a historical painting painter but so i'm more immersing myself kind of in the the conceptual struggle of the principle that i'm trying to convey in the in the work of art and therefore, it is, as a Christian might say, I'm working out my salvation through fear and trembling and painting. You know, it's just um, spending that time with those thoughts. It is a kind of meditation, a kind of communion, certainly. But, you know, what you're saying, like, I, I would say that in today's world, the thing that more of us like as a as a as a global people, it's art, it's films, it's movies that that create our moral universe mm -hmm. um, in a unified way, more than anything else, mm -hmm. because we're all watching the same movies, and we're taking away similar lessons from those movies. Meanwhile, various sects of religion are are arguing with each other about whether or not you should watch the movies in the first place. <laughs> well, you, know, you should <laughs> not, watch not them. Not always. That's a generalization. And but. what exactly God looks like, right? Yeah. Um, to, to you, the the image of God that doesn't have to be in does that have to be like a like the traditional Christian God for you? Do you think? This is this is very personal. I'm open but to I'm, I'm, I'm open to curious. many possibilities, and I don't. But I guess I'm curious in what you relate to because I'm going to go on a little tangent here because I, I am post Mormon myself, so I come at it from a different perspective. I mean, I, I Christianity is a framework that I understand, um, but there are parts of me that is a little disenchanted with it because God's you know a he or a they or an it before a she, yeah. and sometimes that just kind of drives me a little nuts, right? But but then I also don't really care because because god as like in a way there is almost not maybe actually but in a way philosophically there's as many gods as there are people because everyone is going to have their own belief system and relate to that higher power in the way that they understand yeah um and in the way that speaks to them so i i'm, I'm curious i guess i think it makes sense what, to personify god and to depict god in a personified way, mm -hmm. in a way that we understand. Almost and as think, like a functional or pragmatic and spiritual sense almost? Yeah, I think there are, like, there are definitely practical and, um, and other reasons. Like for me, if I picture God as a, you know, a human-esque type being or multiple human type beings, that is a bit more easy for me to relate to than yeah, and even yeah. even like the agency of God in in a in a work of art, it makes sense to depict God personified in order to be a, 
show a God of action, a God of agency, acting like we know how people act because that's what that's what we understand, right? But also it because of that, it's also it also makes sense for us to continue to adapt depictions and understanding in order to have a more open and welcoming world to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so to insist or to persist with kind of a depiction of a very American looking Jesus, it doesn't make sense either historically mm-hmm. nor in terms of our goals as a people of uh spirit who want to embrace the world into our spirituality right it just doesn't make sense from either of those perspectives to keep using and to keep creating images of this american mountain man god yeah absolutely absolutely um you mentioned earlier that you know you've been categorized as a religious artist before you're an artist of many kinds um but I guess the question I have for you is why do you personally identify as an artist and did you ever have a hard time uh, claiming that? I haven't had a hard time claiming it. And, you know, I've seen people kind of give the term artist, like raise it up on a, a high pedestal. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it deserves... A little sometimes. Yeah, like if you say you're an artist, you're pretentious. Mm-hmm. I would just... I feel like we were all artists when we were three years old and mm-hmm. and we and it got beaten out of us, trained out of us, maybe? Or, or yeah, quite. yeah. I mean, uh, it's true that no art is as good as the art of a, of ch- a child, but also just like, like who who is gatekeeping that threshold? You know, yeah. when, when do you become an artist? When you have like a giant following or you're world famous or... Mm-hmm you make something that other artists uh Many a certain artists. percentage declare that this is a great work of art like now i think that that spirit of creativity runs deep and that we're all born with it and that anybody should be able to call themselves an artist yeah to be creative is to be human i i this is kind of the differentiation i make and i would love to know what your what your thoughts are on this as I would consider you a very established artist. Uh, me, myself, I use the word artist with gritted teeth because, you know, it carries some baggage of, you know, like, oh, you know, are you good enough for that kind of thing? That It, it does that, but, at the, you know, and then starts getting into definitions of, you know, what, is, what does art even mean? What is art? I guess, I guess it might be a little bit different for me because you're talking from, like, a film background, mm-hmm. and, and I can see how other disciplines might use that term a little bit differently for a visual artist like that is there is not another term other than like the specific genre like painting or sculpting or whatever Mm -hmm. some people prefer to to call themselves painters but so is it almost a bit easier because there's no other words for it almost like it just has to it's it's a very natural right yeah like mm. i i've been making art i've been making i've been drawing and uh since I was young, and so, mm-hmm. and that is art, you know. Yeah. When I was 
making gluing beans to a piece of paper in mm -hmm. kindergarten that was art do you think art can also be in talking about other disciplines you know can someone be and you know, I mean, architecture is pretty obviously an art, but let's take something, you know, maybe even a bit more like technical. Uh, let me think here. I, it's a, and I'm trying to find a good example, but sometimes it seems to me like art is less about the, the discipline or the, the medium and more about showing up to be creative. I have a hard time with, you know, the kind of logical, mathematical, more, you know, ways of approaching the world, but I, that, but there could be, you know, I think that there is an art and that's even, you know, because yeah. there's almost, because it's almost about like the, the expertise or the level of absolutely the level of applied, you know, work that you put into that. Um, there was a guy I, that I, was I mixed doing feelings on that. What are your what are your thoughts on that? I like I one of the things I'm worst at is plumbing. Mm -hmm. If I try to put a valve on a pipe, it's there's going to be a drip. Mm -hmm. And you could say that there's a science that that's a science and not an art, but uh, you know, a plumber. But there's so much art in science. With, um, a plumber that came and did something for me talked about how that was his art, and I do think that you know there is creativity and ingenuity even in how you approach what some people might consider manual labor. Or mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I'm certainly open to the idea that there is an art in any. Dis like you can approach mm -hmm. any discipline with art in mind. Mm -hmm. So would art be more in being like detail oriented? Would it be more in the in the practice of it? Is it more in the I think it's the, the practice feeling? and creativity. The, it's 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 filling your tool belt with tools that you've earned through experience, creativity, and intuition. Mm -hmm. How do your other identities affect your art? I mean, you're also a father. You know, I know you're you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but you know, you're you're a painter, you're a sculptor, you're a, a, a homeowner, and your home, by the way, here is very very lovely. I, I, as I sit here right now, there's beautiful art on the walls, and you're just you're in a very you're in a completely different world. Our motto, my motto here, is that every wall is an easel, and and so most of the work on the walls is unfinished or in, in some form of mm -hmm. some stage of progress. Have yeah, they pursued art as well? No, I, I mean, some of them, everyone's tried a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. We, like my wife, also came from a musical family. And so what we've done with our own children is have them take music lessons. So that's kind of been the foundation for them as well. I have taught them some artwork. I used to do summer workshops principally for the, or one of the main reasons I did it was to rope them in and to set some mm -hmm. time aside to teach them some things. And, um, and I keep kind of trying to push them in the direction of making art. <laughs> But also, I, d I really don't want to, I don't want to pressure Push, them. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I give them opportunities, but it's, it's not actually first priority. The thing mm -hmm. that they have to do is they have to learn the language of music and, and then explore whatever creativity calls to them. So mm -hmm. Why do you always start with music first? I don't, it's a good question. You know, when I look at even every time I 
look at like actors and filmmakers and and visual artists it seems like they all have some interaction with music i think that there's uh i think it makes connections with like the synapses in your brain and the mobility of your hands and um the 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 culture you Almost know just culture in general too. exactly there are mathematical elements but also like uh composition and emotional elements and there are you know i st every day when i paint i use some of the ideas of phrasing that i learned from my piano teacher so i just think that's a really good foundation was was your piano teacher one of your first mentors and 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 on your instagram you have a whole highlight of of different artists who have impacted you i know you've studied oh, yeah. with hagen and um briefly with james christensen briefly mm -hmm. um so so you've gained a lot of insights from these mentors can you name a few of them and some of the the, yeah. the did that start with the piano teacher you know when you were younger well yeah i mean i yeah, I do still use a lot of things that I, that my teachers have taught me, including from my music teachers. But um, do you just want me to list some of them? Not, not as much list, more as in like a like a timeline. So let's so to kind of backtrack. You know, you grew up Provo, Utah. You you were came to your parents, and you're like, I don't want to play the French horn any, anymore. Please sign me up for some art classes. Were you already drawing and sketching then? Was mm -hmm. that a pretty natural transition? Yeah, back then I was doing you know, stipple, you know, pointillist drawings of dragons. That's what mm -hmm. everybody was doing. Of course, of course, naturally, <laughs> right. Yeah, so, um, but yes, I did, um, yeah, so after that, my, my, my mom found me a teacher, um, and I started taking private lessons from him. He, he had taught in Los Angeles. He had, you know, had a career as a sign painter early on, I think, and then moved into art teaching in Hollywood. And he would, I'd go over to his house and he would, uh, you know, regale me with stories of uh, Hollywood and, and running into celebrities, and but also teaching high schoolers. And his high schoolers would, would win lots of awards in various places. And, and so he, from him, I learned a lot about design about um, shapes uh, and how the shapes relate to each other and about how they move how artists would move the viewer's eye through a composition um, which you know has a, a is very parallel with music as well so those are some things that I learned from parallel from with here. film as well in some ways in terms of composition yeah, yeah, right yeah yeah mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, after that, so you just continue to pursue painting, sketching. Were you very, very curious? Were you just like eating it all up? Were you, you know, and, di and did you know, you know, as, you were, as soon as you were graduating high school and heading into college, you're like, I'm going to be an art major. This is what I'm going to study. Um, yeah, this no, is who was, I want to, you know, work under. I, I floundered. You know, there were definitely moments, times, periods when I was like, I, I'm, I don't know what to do next. This isn't working. So, yeah, I went to college and it took me a couple semesters before committing to it. Mm -hmm. And then um, I kind of in the middle of college, 
I was quite frustrated mm. and I dropped out. Were you frustrated with the, with the academic structure or what, what was frustrating um, you about? I was frustrated that I, wa I didn't feel like I was getting like just the fundamentals, the techniques, kind of the traditional, like that I felt like I was being pushed to do conceptual work that I didn't want to do. Like that this was more theoretical and th that I needed some just traditional skills. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I did drop out for a bit. I just painted on my own, wasn't really figuring out where I wanted to go at that point. And then this artist was doing a workshop. So I, I actually had a job, seven, $7 an hour at a local gallery mm -hmm. and there was this beautiful painting in the office there and I heard that this artist was coming to Utah to do a workshop and so um, asked about that I ended up taking this artist's workshop he had just graduated from the New York Academy got his master's there and um, so got to talking to him about my frustrations and my education, he invited me to come to his home in New Jersey to stay there and apprentice with him. And in exchange for like, I would help kind of work on his house, help him with some window glazing. I, I dug post holes for a chicken, uh, chicken coop in the backyard and things like that. <laughs> and um, so manual labor for some artistic inspiration yeah exactly it was very karate kid uh-huh sensei um, <laughs> put the jacket on put the jacket off yeah A anyway so i he kind of showed me the track of that he'd gone through the places that he'd studied the things that he'd learned and um that, w that was very interesting to me i didn't stay very long at his place but i it took me many, many months after that experience to just put into practice all the things that I'd seen and, and learned from him. And so I came back. He actually convinced me to finish my degree. So I came back and got back into college and finished that degree. I got a Bachelor of Arts. By the time I finished college, as I was finishing the last few semesters, I started doing paintings that made sense and that communicated something and that were uh, visually held together enough that that they they worked and that people wanted them mm -hmm. for you college sounds very crucial very you know like pivotal a pivotal time for you um would you encourage everyone to to pursue higher education specifically in that way in the arts because there are lots of different tracks. I see it a lot in film, right? You, you walk onto a film set and you're like, oh, how did you get into film? And someone's like, oh, you know, I watched Lord of the Rings behind the scenes. And, you know, I was a goner from there. Or someone else is like, oh, you know, I went to AFI and, you know, my short film got into Sundance and, and I ended up here. And then and other people are like, oh, I just, I kind of just, you know, PA'd. Uh, I was just an assistant on set for a friend. And then I just fell in love with it. So the, the, the paths that people end up in film are super wide and varied. In, the art, in, in arts in general, it appears to be that way. Um, what are your thoughts? You know, the future generation of artists are thinking about, oh, should I go to school? And, and how should I go to school? 
one way or another, I think higher education is important. You know, my personal opinion is that there are lots of ways to go about it. Uh, I, I did go to BYU myself in film. Um, but what is your opinion on that? And how did how is your journey, uh, you know, informed by, by school? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say I also agree that there are many ways to to get there. And I think um, that school has a few. So, so when I went to school, there were there were kind of two two um, what's the two programs. One of them was the visual arts program, which is more conceptual. It was the it's creating art for a contemporary audience, mm -hmm. trying to get you prepared to be able to go to graduate school in Yale or whatever. That was kind of where, that was the program that I went through. Yeah. And I felt like... Academics for more academic purposes, maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then the other option was to do commercial art or illustration, pro the illustration yeah. program. Graphic design. And that didn't really suit me either. So I felt like there was this kind of chasm in between that mm -hmm. was where I, and many people, most people actually might fit. Um, and so what I tell people is you, you're probably going to need to supplement your studies whichever route you go. Mm -hmm. So if you don't do college, the, the biggest thing that I see commonly, and I, I don't want to make any generalizations, but just I see commonly um, the people that don't do college or that drop out and don't finish a, a degree, they're... They often don't have the same kind of conceptual rigor. They're not um, talking about their artwork or conceptualizing their artwork in ways that engage with kind of the conceptual problems uh, of the world that we live in as much. But then the, the flip side of that is that if you don't supplement or kind of go outside of a con conceptual oriented program, a lot of those artists don't speak to the general public. Like they hone in and their audience is the academy. It is the art, mm -hmm. it is art programs in other universities, right? So I think if you can if you can marry those two worlds where you're speaking to a larger group but also conceptually rigorous and you know how your artwork and you can talk about how your artwork does or doesn't fit into kind of the sweep of current Oops, art history that's just a, a huge advantage because there aren't that many artists that end up being able to do all of those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, for you, was it in the academic world while you were learning about art, is that where you really came to understand what your identity and self, like what, what you were into, your taste, your you know, uh, trajectory as an artist? Is that kind of where you came to shape that? I mean, or is that I think always my ongoing? whole life is shaping that, and <laughs> yeah. it is always ongoing. And also, but, but, part of that is just you... into it. Part of that is listening to yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's like when I go to a museum, 
what is just what is just picking me up and lifting lifting me off the ground when I go you know when I when I see art mm-hmm. when I see a film when I listen to music what is it that is just making me elated or just moving my whole soul mm-hmm. and how can I tap into that um, and 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 valuing that above whatever your teachers that you've been studying with are mm-hmm. saying or that your peers that are saying oh look at this artist this this is the best best artist in the world you know it's so easy to get swept one way or the other by other people's opinions but mm-hmm. if you can really listen to your inner artist telling you like this is what is this is super inspiring and capture part of that you know how one thing that this makes me think of is is how important it is to play right because how will you know what you like if you don't you know play and experiment and you know give yourself that it's kind of you know hit on the head a lot but give yourself that space to fail and not even just fail but explore um what like early on when you were still kind of you know shaping that um because i mean you you know you've you've been around the block several times as an artist like in in terms of you know pursuing a new medium teaching yourself that medium finding out what you like within that medium and creating something both from the heart and from your taste and then also but also something that speaks to others um and i'm sure that there are different hurdles each time that you start a new phase um, but I would imagine that it it does get certain pieces of it get easier. Yeah, definitely. I I think part of the reason we love art <clears throat> or love art making is the exploration, and so I've always tried to make sure that there is a certain amount of exploration in my art making practice, and so. I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm not trying something new. What is your creative process like? Lots of different things. It's just like trying a painting from a new approach, you know, and and some of them are super spontaneous. Some of them are very measured and process oriented. Um, But yeah, like I, one of the things that keeps things fresh for me is working in different spaces. I have different studios that I go to to just have a fresh eye and a fresh, uh, you know, fresh energy infused into art making. Just seeing things in a new place um, is really helpful. Looking at, at art in museums is a regular kind of part of the process um, being reminded of what some of the possibilities are or exploring new ones seeing what thing what people are doing that is new Um, those are all part of it you know in in your in your career you've picked up a lot of different lessons from a lot of different artists from a lot of different uh, from a lot of media around you and just from life experience is there anything that you had to unlearn specifically to get to where you are? Like any beliefs that you were like, oh, this, this one isn't serving me anymore as an artist and I have to, I have to shed this. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially 
I felt like I had to unlearn a lot of things that were taught me in college <laughs> mm. um, or emphasized. There was definitely kind of an uh, anti-selling um, what's the word ethos or whatever mm-hmm. at, in college like if you were making a living you were selling out or if you were producing a lot you were a factory you know all of those kinds of things I ultimately shed mm-hmm. how do you find a balance with that because I, I I'm a filmmaker primarily but I um like I said, I worked in the marketing side, I mean, the film side of marketing for several years. And um, while I did get to be creative and while I did get to explore some things, I was still, you know, I was still following a certain formula for a certain client's, you know, agenda and script, right? So there was some flexibility within that, but not as much as I maybe would have hoped for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and literally the motto of the, of, the, of the company that I worked for is, you know, uh, sales first, art second. And for me, now where, I, where I'm at now is I've learned from that. I would really like to pursue projects that put story over sell. Um, selling is important. Motto. It is. It hurts. It hurts. It does <laughs> that hurt. It's a really painful motto. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does hurt. Um, I would say. So, how do you balance that? Because I, I also don't buy into the idea that artists have to be, you know, broke, miserable, suffering in order to make great art. They don't have to, you know, th- th- there are ways to still be, quote unquote, Successful. There's lots of ways to define success, but um, I think of it as a as a as a spectrum, as a kind of a, a tightrope. Um, and on one end of that rope is the pure purist, the artist who's like nobody understands me. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do my own thing, and it is brilliant. And you all can suck an egg or whatever you know? yeah yeah and then on the other end is like i hate doing this but i'm doing it because this is what sells and i'm gonna you know mm-hmm. i'm gonna make money i don't really like either of those positions um i kind of try to occupy a certain area of that the rope in between where it's something that i like doing mm-hmm. and there is a certain amount of overlap of that rope of what the public enjoys from my work as mm-hmm. well and 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 sometimes i'll back up a little bit and move towards like i'm trying to bring the public a little bit towards my side of the rope where i'm doing my ideas until hopefully i can get to the point where i love all of those ideas that i'm working on but also i've brought enough of the public with me to understand my language to understand what i'm good at um, so that I'm operating, making the things that I love to make, and the public is accepting it and purchasing it and supporting it. What I would say is, um, I try to may I try to keep my com- work that I do on commission for clients at a, a a certain small percentage of my overall output, in order to continually develop my own work and have people more interested in purchasing the work that I do on my own terms rather than for hire. Mm. That, 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 I feel like that's a very wise balance to make. Do you think that that has helped? People are not against working hard, but, um, but you also are able to not turn it into a, a work that's a drag. 
you know, it's not soul sucking, yeah. you know, you know, some people are like, oh, don't go into something you really love doing. Don't do, don't, don't actually start working in something you're passionate about because then you'll hate it, you know? And yeah. I, I, I can't not do that, but I also don't want to hate what I'm, what I love. Um, so how do you, do you think that that has helped strike your balance when you like put those boundaries in place where you're like, okay, I'll serve, quote unquote, serve the market, you know, this much, but at the same time, I have my own terms and my own way of doing things. Absolutely, yeah. I think that an artist should always be thinking about the the terms and the bounds, bounds set around what the artist is willing to do and and educate the client so that they know that this is what you're good at and you're hiring me for this expertise and so you got to trust mm -hmm. me, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. That, yeah. That's why they go to you, right? It's for your taste, for your vision. Yeah. How do you define success? I mean, I, I don't know if I do, but let's define it. But I, I think I feel good when I like the thing that I've created. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I feel bad when I don't like it. You know, and I, I feel there's plenty of things that I, especially in the early years, let go too early or didn't have quite the experience to finish the, it off in a way that I'm proud about. And so I, these days I try to not let nearly, I try to minimize the percentage of things that I let out of the studio prematurely, mm. but also maximize my overall output too. Like it's not a chore to create, a, to produce a lot if it's if they are if it's art that you like and that you feel good about and mm -hmm. so that's kind of my goal I, I guess that would be success for me when when did your this is something that happens early on and since i consider myself a very amateur artist and the reason i say that is while i am a fairly accomplished filmmaker i've been in marketing and commercial for a while and for me because it's put sell over story i have a hard time feeling like that's art and so I feel very amateur in, in, the sense of, in the sense of knowing what my taste is and what I'm into. In a way, you know, my taste, like I watch, you know, Tarkovsky, you know, M Terrence Malick films. And I'm like, oh, you know, that just like that, what that does to my soul is like, oh, I would love to, you know, you know, draw pieces from that. And if I could even make something that is even a little bit like I, like I actually like it, like I actually feel this is where I want to be. Uh, that means that I will have closed the gap between what I can do and my taste. Because my taste is way up here and it will always be, you know, a little bit unattainable for me. But that's also what keeps me going in a way. Um, when do you think you close the gap? Because this, this is, a, this is a, a personal issue that I have sometimes where, I, where it's hard for me to like what I do. Like I, one time yeah. I, I finish something and I just want to leave it all behind because I just want to be focused on what's next. Sure, how, did yeah. you help, how did you close that gap between, you know, your taste and... and or do you feel like you just kept showing up until one day or you that got a little easier? Yeah, definitely. I think part of it is just about putting your head down and doing it, making it, making things, you know, making, trying new things, moving towards those in, pieces that inspire you so much, trying to capture a little bit of that. Um, I think... That gap, you know, the Ira Glass gap that we're talking about, mm -hmm. it 
is giant at the beginning and it narrows, but then it, it's not linear and it can get, it can open up again, you know, mm -hmm. like it's not, I don't know if it ever, I don't think it should ever completely close because, um, or maybe I just don't well, think that's that what it keeps can. You going, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you're always reaching for something, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're reaching for something that's unattainable. This is kind of the age-old question, but you know, where do you get inspiration? I know it's from everywhere, but what are some like specific either artists or things that you're really into right now that's inspiring you currently? Or places. That works too. Um, at museums. I'm really inspired by museums and some of the ones that are less known. You know, I have a studio in Massachusetts that I work at. Um, and when I'm there, I go to, there are museums like, like, like just small museums, like the Norman Rockwell Museum or the Eric Carl Museum. Um, there's also a, a giant uh, contemporary art museum called the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And specifically, there are installations by this artist, Anselm Kiefer, uh, that are very, they're just very moving to me. And so I'm, I'm trying to think about ways that I can create a space that evokes the same kind of feeling for people that go there. It's just kind of an immersive uh, installation type experience. For you, when you kind of catch that, that spark when you're starting something new, do you, you know, rush to a notebook, rush to a canvas? Do you sketch something out? Do you, how do, how do you start that? Like when, or, or does, does, does it still happen where it's just like, oh, this idea popped in my head, I have to put it somewhere. Yeah, I encourage my students especially to keep a sketchbook and, and, and to record their ideas in it. And it might be, they might be words, they might be drawings, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then you can always come back to that notebook and, and uh, use those as starting points for, or, you know, or that notebook can be a, a place to work out kind of the details or, or solve problems. And um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a really good idea to keep a sketchbook. What do you, what do you wish that you had known? And th this question is, is uh, you can't go back in time. You can't go back to, you know, 18 year old Kirk and be like, this is, this is what you need to know. This is the path you should take. Cause ultimately you're at where you are because of all the steps you took. And so there's no going back, but what do you kind of wish you had known when you were first starting out or wisdom that you would impart to our listeners? Those people on the creative path who are continually showing up, but uh, you know, going through, you know, what it is, what it means to be creative, which is complicated sometimes. I mean, I think I, I would have probably done better if I would have produced more in the early years, um, and and does that include you know making some garbage before you make some good stuff as well? I think it means making, for me, I should have made more small things mm -hmm. in the beginning. Um, I just, it really 
I didn't like the idea of doing small things or series of work that were affordable and um, and I should have done that from from the beginning. I think that would have helped a lot. Um, I would have. I, w I think I, I should have been, I, art making takes this weird kind of balance of patience and lack of patience. Like you need things to happen, <laughs> but also certain things take time. So I wish I could have figured out a little bit better which things I should have given more time and which things I should have not um, been patient about um, but but like you say you know it's we learn from experience and we all kind of have to carve our own path as artists and um, you know I, I don't I, I don't spend a lot of time regretting or yeah imagining a different really an alternate uh, mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. do you have any uh gallery shows coming up yeah i have a gallery in provo it's uh you can follow that instagram as well it's at jkr gallery and we have a new month every or a new show every month and so you know if you follow that instagram you can um be up to date on what new shows are coming up and sometimes there's open calls too so if you're a visual artist and you want to submit something um you know we probably have three or four open call shows during the year and and also i'm working on a little museum that's on instagram at at j kirk richards museum i think uh, it'll be a few months before that is up and running but uh, that's what one of the things I'm excited about right now. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. I really appreciate your insights and yeah, experience. It was a pleasure talking with you. To keep up with Art Breakers, follow us at Art Breakers Podcast on Instagram and check out the show notes at artbreakerspodcast.com. Episodes released bi-weekly every other Tuesday, and there's much, much more to come. In the words of comedian and cartoonist Dimitri Martin, Earth without art would just be eh. Thank you for tuning in to Art Breakers.